John chapter 17. We're actually just going to look at the first five verses in John chapter 17 this morning, although I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. And the reason I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter is because this is all one prayer that Jesus prays uh, right before he, uh, he uh, is betrayed by Judas and arrested uh, and tried and crucified. These are mere hours before Jesus would go and finalize the work that he came to accomplish when he went to the cross. So I'm going to read all of this this morning. But if you're here this morning, you don't have a copy of God's Word. Um, I don't think there are actually any more on the back table back there, but there are, in fact, some still under the offering box in the back. Uh, feel free to pick one of those up throughout the course of our time together. As always, to have these words in front of you is, uh, will make the sermon much more enjoyable as we'll be referencing them throughout our time, time together this morning. I'm going to read again John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, and all the way through the end of the chapter. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the, word has, or the, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them 
and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as, I, as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So before Christmas, as we looked at this passage the first time, uh, we explored both the setting of this prayer and the manner of the prayer as well. And you'll remember that the setting of the prayer is, again, I just mentioned it a few moments ago, but the few hours before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He and his disciples have shared a time together. They've shared a meal together in the upper room uh, where Jesus gave his disciples some final instructions. And now he's just mere minutes away from being arrested and tried and crucified. That's the setting. We need to keep that in mind as we consider what Jesus prays here in John 17. And then also the manner of the prayer. We explored this together as well. The manner of Jesus' prayer is confident assurance. Jesus now approaches his heavenly Father uh, in prayer, knowing that he and the Father are in perfect harmony, that they're in perfect unity together, that they're in perfect fellowship with one another. And Jesus, throughout John's gospel, has told his disciples over and over again, he's told them this time and time again, that he is perfectly synced up with the Father, that they are not out of step even at one point, they're not even in the smallest way uh, out of sync. He and the Father are one. And so when we get to John chapter 17, he's putting that on full display for his disciples to see. He's putting this unity, this harmony, this fellowship together on full display in what we would call, and you probably see this as a heading in your Bible, the high priestly prayer. High priests in the Old Testament made sacrifices to, uh, to God uh, and uh, for the sins of the people. And they had to do this one time a year on the Day of Atonement, year after year after year after year, to atone for, or to pay for, to make intercession before God for the people. But Jesus is praying this prayer because his crucifixion, the cross, just a few minutes away from where we stand right here in John chapter 17, this would represent one final, the last and the only, the only sacrifice that anyone ever needs. It's a once and for all sacrifice. Jesus, therefore, is the final high priest. He prays here, making intercession for his disciples, and he makes intercession for you and for I. And he is about to make once and for all sacrifice, again, never needing to be duplicated. It will cover all of the sins of those who are joined to him by faith, including yours, if you trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus knows in these moments, as he's praying these words, he knows what he's about to endure. He has an understanding about what he is going to accomplish. This is the culmination of the covenant that, the, that was made within the Godhead, the Father, Son, 
and spirit in eternity past. And this is the way that it was meant to unfold. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension to the Father's right hand, Jesus in perfect harmony, unity, fellowship with the Father, prays here with confident assurance. But what about the content of the prayer? And that's what we want to explore, or at least begin to explore this morning together. What is, actually, what, what is Jesus actually praying here? The high priestly prayer, all of John 17, can be broken up into three discernible sections, therefore. The first one that we're going to look at this morning is verses 1 through 5, where Jesus prays for himself. And the second one is verses 6 through 19, where Jesus play, prays directly for his disciples. And then the final section in 20 through 26, verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all who would believe. That includes you and that includes me. You and I, even in these moments, Jesus had in his mind's eye. So, this morning, we're just going to consider the first section together. But again, I read this all because I want to see you to see that all of this goes, goes together. So, but this morning, these first five verses are what we're going to focus our time and attention on together. And there are three things in these five verses that I want you to be aware of that are going to guide our time together this morning. The first is this. It's the aim of Jesus' prayer. And the second is the reason Jesus will be glorified by the Father. And the third and final thing that we'll consider before we conclude is the eternal life that Jesus gives. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is the aim of Jesus' prayer. You'll see again in these first five verses that Jesus praying for himself we must ask the question, what does he actually pray for himself here? And it's actually very simple. If you look at the end, or sort of the end of verse 1, he says, glorify your son. Jesus is praying that he would be glorified. And then if you look in verse 5, Jesus says, now, Father, glorify me. Now, there's a little bit more that comes before and after each of those, but that's the heart of what Jesus is praying for here. Jesus is praying that he would be glorified. And before we explore even more of these first five verses in the aim of Jesus' prayer, I want to encourage you that we should, as those who have trusted Jesus, who have been joined to him by faith, we should uh, pray similarly. We should pray similarly, but not with ourselves as the subject, as the one to be glorified, but as with Jesus as the subject as the one who should be glorified. We should pray to the Father that the Son would be glorified. Now, what, is, what does that mean? What does it mean that we would pray that? We like to say in Christian circles, we often say things like, I just want God to be glorified in whatever happens. Or we say something like, uh, well, I want my life to glorify God. But what do we mean when we say that? What do we mean when we say that our desire is to bring glory to God? If you say, I want to glorify Jesus, if you pray to the Father that Jesus would be glorified, what you're saying is what John the Baptist said earlier in John chapter 3, verse 30, when he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. If 
we desire for Jesus to be glorified in us, then we desire all of him to be seen in all of us. If we desire for Jesus to be glorified in us, then we desire for all of him to be seen in all of us. So when you pray that Jesus would be glorified, when you follow Jesus in the same way that he prays here, that Jesus would be glorified, you're praying that Christ would be evident in every part of your life and every part, uh, everything that is going on in and around you. Last week, John preached out of Deuteronomy 5. He preached the Ten Commandments. Okay, so we've talked about three Johns so far. John the Gospel writer, John the Baptist, different John, and John Baumgartner, who's a different John as well. So, so John preached out of Deuteronomy 5 last week and uh, out of the Ten Commandments. And the glory that is due God is seen right in the first commandment. God, when he uh, gives his people the law, the very first thing he says to them, or the very first command, the very first imperative he gives them is, you shall have no other gods before me. John Baumgartner said it like this. I'm just going to read this. Having no other gods before the Lord doesn't just mean that he takes first place. It also means that we don't have any other gods on the list. It means that we don't have any other gods on the list. And so when you pray when, that Christ would be glorified, you're praying that it would be exceedingly evident that there are no other gods on the list. That no other pursuit is worth pursuing. That no other thing can satisfy. That no other deliverer can deliver. There is none. There are none on the list. None of those things can be done outside of, the, uh, outside of God himself. And we should pray like this because this is what we are designed for. We are designed to reflect God. We are designed to, so that the world would see who God is in and through us. So that we would decrease and that he would increase. We bear the image of God. We were created in God's image in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created man and woman in his image for a purpose, for a reason. So that the world would know who God is. So that we would reflect accurately to the world who God is. He didn't create us in his image so that we would be glorified. He created us in his image so that he would be glorified. Now, that's Genesis 1. And by the time we get to Genesis 3, mankind has screwed this up to the point where, uh, to the point where sin taints the whole thing and everything gets flipped on its head and the image bearing becomes a self-glorification mechanism for human history. But when Jesus came into the world, he reversed course again. He made it so that we can properly bear the image of God and properly reflect to the world who God is. Sin, sin tarnishing and polluting the image in humanity, in Christ, the image has been recovered. You and I can display Christ clearly to the world. Another way to say that is to say that you and I can glorify Christ when all of him is seen in all of us. Now, 
How is it that all of Christ can be seen in all of us? What does that actually look like? What does it actually look like to glorify or to pray that Jesus would be glorified? And the answer is simple. All of Christ is seen in all of us through the obedience that comes by faith. All of Christ is seen in all of us through the obedience that comes by faith. Christ is glorified in you when, by faith, you obey all that he commands you. When you look at the commands of Christ in Scripture, to love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor, to love one another, to pray, to bear the burdens of one another, to uh, proclaim the gospel, to love your wife, to submit to your husband, to honor your parents, to set aside the Lord's day for worship and rest, etc., etc., etc. When you look at the commands of Christ and you think to yourself, I'm not sure I fully understand why God and his word has told me to do this, but, and I'm not sure that it makes sense to me, but even though that doesn't make fully, fully make sense to me right now in this moment, and I don't understand, I will in faith obey Christ. Much of the Christian life, oftentimes the Christian life, we look at things that God tells us in his word and we think to ourselves, I don't know what that means. And, but it, so instead of pursuing a better understanding or instead of just stepping into simple obedience as it's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, we set it on the shelf and forget about it for years and years and years until in our Bible reading plan we get back to it. The reality is the way that we glorify Christ is when we see a command that we're not quite sure how to follow in Scripture, we by faith step into it still. When you, and, when you look at your marriage and you wonder to yourself, can I submit to my husband? Can I love my wife in this moment? The, the answer is yes, because Christ has commanded you to do so. When you look at your neighbor and you wonder why they continue to do whatever it is that they do that you don't like, like let their weeds grow into your lawn, you ask yourself, can I love my neighbor? And the answer is yes, because Christ has commanded you to do it. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you his word. He's equipped you fully to do all that he has commanded you to do. And so even though in that moment it might not make sense, how do I love my neighbor? We step into obedience by faith and we glorify Christ through it. If your internal objections to the commands of scripture prevent you from being obedient, you've proven, you've proven that you have another God before the Lord that you have another God before Yahweh, that you have another God before the true and living God. And that God most likely is you because you've said, I will be the arbiter of what I do and what I don't do. I will be the one who has the final say on if I will obey or step into this task that God has given me or not. I must increase, you say. And therefore, whether you intend it or not, he must decrease. But far be it from us, Buffalo City Church, that we would seek to dethrone Jesus Christ. Rather, we should come humbly before his throne, acknowledging that apart from him, we can do nothing. So, what you should do, all of this is to say, what you should do what Jesus does here and pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified by the Father. 
that Jesus Christ would be glorified in you. In full acknowledgement that Jesus is glorified when all of him is seen in all of us. In Christ, we are joined to him by faith and freed to obey all that he has commanded us. Jesus prays that he would be glorified and we should pray that as well. The second thing I want you to see in these five verses, though, is the reason Jesus will be glorified by the Father. But notice also in these five verses, we see the reason. So first, first thing, there's two things here that I want you to see, two reasons. First is found in verse two, right out of the gate. Since you have given him, since the Father has given Jesus, authority over all flesh. In tonight's, uh, in tonight's Sunday evening service, we'll be back here uh, at, uh, at 5 p.m. for dinner, 6 p.m. for Sunday evening service. We're going to consider together the Great Commission, just Matthew 18, 18, uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, excuse me. And also uh, the Acts passage, uh, Acts 1, 6 through 11. I hope you'll join us for that. But in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says something similar. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And here he prays, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now, Jesus, as he's praying, is saying, why should, why should he be glorified? Because all authority has been given to me. And in the Great Commission, Jesus is using that as the basis uh, for his sending of the disciples. So it's a little bit different, but it gives us an understanding that all authority has been given to Jesus. Jesus has been given all authority in a way that no one else will ever be given authority. Over all flesh, over all heaven, over all earth, and all of Jesus should be seen in all of us because Jesus is entirely authoritative. We gravitate to authority all of the time. We like people who, who speak confidently and who, who have direction in their life. We look them up online and try to emulate them. We take steps to be like them and even craft our personal style after them. We like authority. What does it look like to have authority? We appeal to authority in arguments. We like to even have authority in our own spheres. We like to feel authoritative and and, and take responsibility for the things around us. But all final authority belongs to Jesus Christ and to him alone. All final authority. So the first reason that Jesus will be glorified by the Father is because he's been given all final authority. But the second reason the Son will be glorified by the Father is through this, or through this authority is he has, been, he has given eternal life to all the Father gave him. So if you continue in verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. So how is Jesus using this authority? He's using it to give eternal life to all the Father has given him. For us who are in Christ, our eternal life is secured by the reality that Jesus has authority over all things. That all ultimate final authority belongs to Jesus. That's where your eternal life is secured. If Jesus said in this passage, 
some authority in heaven and earth has been given to me or all authority over some flesh has been given to me. If that was, if there's anything but all authority over all things, you could not be confident. You could not be confident that eternal life was guaranteed to you. Think about it this way. If your car breaks down this week and you take it to a mechanic and he says, well, I'm sure, I'm, I'm not sure what the problem is. Uh, and I'm not sure that I can get the parts for maybe what I think it is. And uh, I'm going on vacation tomorrow, but I'll have it back to you in the next 48 hours. Would you think to yourself, the car is going to be fixed in 48 hours? No, you wouldn't. How is he going to fix the car if he isn't here, he can't get the parts, and it doesn't know the problem? How could, he, how could he actually deliver on that promise? And the answer is he can't. He cannot guarantee the car will be fixed because he has no authority. His authority is severely limited. It's limited by time. It's limited by knowledge. It's limited by supply chains. It's entirely and only limited. But Jesus is not limited by any of those things. Jesus is not limited by anything. And if Jesus is not limited by anything, then he can fully, he can fully guarantee that the eternal life that he promises and brings to us through his death, burial, and resurrection belongs to us and is securely ours for all of eternity. So, the reason Jesus will be glorified by the Father is because the authority has been given and because of the eternal life that he has given and secured for all who the Father has given to him. The last thing this morning that I want you to see, though, is a little bit more about the eternal life that Jesus gives. And we see this right in the center of these five verses in verse 3. Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, we use the term or the two words together, the phrase, the word eternal life, regularly in our lives as Christians. But what exactly is that, or the eternal life that is guaranteed to us through Christ, who has been given all final authority? What is the eternal life? And we see it again in verse 3. This is eternal life, definition coming, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. First, he says that we would know. This is an indicator of information, or that to know here isn't just an indicator of information neatly tucked away somewhere in our brain to be accessed later. This isn't knowledge like we think about it in an information age. The way that Jesus says to know here, what Jesus means is that we would have relationship with God through him. Eternal life, that they know you, that they know the Father, that they have relationship with the Father. Friends, the only way to have relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to have relationship with God except through the person of Jesus 
Christ. Consider John 14, 6 and 7. You, you know this. We've, we've been over this many, many times. Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus Christ, what he's saying to his disciples there is that if they have seen him, then they have seen the Father because he is in perfect unity, perfect harmony, perfect fellowship with the Father. And so to see Jesus Christ is to see the Father, but to fail to see Jesus Christ is to never see the Father. And so what is eternal life? Eternal life, Jesus says, is having relationship with God because God in the person of Jesus Christ is the infinite source of life. He is the way, he says he is the truth, and he says he is the life. And all the way back at the beginning, in the first few verses of John's gospel, John writes, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. So Jesus here in John 17 prays that he would be glorified by the Father because he accomplished what God, Father, Son, and Spirit had planned before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, he says this, uh, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That through the work Jesus would accomplish on earth, through his life, through his death, through his burial and resurrection, a people would be purchased for his own possession. And that there would be restored relationship. That eternal life would be given to men, women, and boys and girls who put their faith in Jesus Christ. John, the same author of this gospel, writes in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 3, right at the end of the Bible, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is eternal life. God dwelling with his people in un uninterrupted by sin. So Jesus prays for himself that he would be glorified by the Father with the glory that was his before the world existed because according to the authority given to him, he has accomplished all that was planned for him to accomplish. The giving of eternal life, the restoration of relationship with God, to all who, who are given to him. So, what should we take away from these five verses? What should we conclude together? And I just want to ask you two questions as you go from this place for you to think about. First question is this. If eternal life is, because eternal life is, uh, <laughs> is, um, I should have just state that correctly. Because eternal life is relationship with God, do you have relationship with God through Jesus Christ? The only way to have relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Do you have relationship with God through Jesus Christ? And I'm asking that question because of what I just said. The relationship with God is eternal life. No one who does not have a relationship with God through Jesus will inherit eternal life. If you do not have relationship with God 
through Jesus, you will not inherit eternal life. And so if you're trusting in anything other than the person of Jesus Christ fully for relationship with God, leave that thing and cling to Christ exclusively. The relationship that you have with God, though, isn't this ethereal, out there, theoretical thing. It is intensely practical. It is intensely practical. And we are oftentimes deceived as Christians to think that this relationship that we have with God is anything but intensely practical. The evidences of the relationship with God can actually be discerned and seen in our lives. We can see the evidence of the relationship that we have with God, with time spent in prayer, with time spent in God's word, with time spent with other Christians in Christian community and in congregational worship like you are this morning. It's seen in living by faith. By obeying all that Christ commands us, even when you're not quite sure what it looks like or what it means, or even when it doesn't quite compute in your finite mind. Those who claim to have a relationship with God and Jesus Christ, but who give no thought to prayer throughout their day, whose Bibles collect dust on the shelf, who regularly isolate themselves from the church, finding themselves regularly skipping congregational worship for other activities, who have no meaningful relationships with other Christians, who excuse themselves from obeying the commands of Christ in Scripture and don't even know what those commands are, this type of life is not giving evidence of a relationship with God and Jesus, but are undisputedly giving evidence for a relationship that, or a life that lacks relationship with God. The relationship that God has with his people is intensely practical. And it's born out in all of life. Friends, to glorify Christ is to look at all that Christ commands and to, through faith, obey. Sometimes Christians like to say, well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And that's absolutely right in one sense. Eternal life is a relationship with God. We just said that. To have relationship with God through Jesus Christ is what eternal life is. It can only be had through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. But in another very real sense, many times Christians, and this may be true of you, say it's not a religion, it's a relationship. In, in, in order to justify their in increasing lack of desire or total lack of desire to participate in anything that would represent a formal element of Christianity, even when Scripture is explicit and commands it. We say, I don't need to go to congregational worship. I don't need to have Christian community. I don't need to read my Bible all that often. I don't need to obey the commands of Christ if they're inconvenient. But what's actually going on is this. Their lives are not giving evidence to the relationship with God by rejecting what they would perceive to be religious elements, even when they are prescribed by God. In fact, their lives are giving evidence of complete lack of relationship with God by rejecting what they've commanded him to do. Is that you this morning? Are you living, thinking that you have relationship with God, but you have no desire to pray, read the Bible, study God's word, 
live in Christian community, etc. Friend, the, the, the most kind thing, the kindest thing that I can say to you this morning is this. If you have a relationship with God, those things will be a desire. But you have no relationship with God if you think that those things of God and living according to them do not matter practically in your life. And you can also be assured that eternal life, therefore, is not yours. Friends, if that's you, there's a simple solution. Come to Christ this morning. Leave whatever it is that you are clinging to that is holding you back from following Jesus with all of your life. Come to Christ and cling to Christ. Leave that thing behind you. He's offering himself freely. Turn from your costless false religion, from your self-worship, from your idolatry, from your rebellion, from your sin. Turn from your sin and trust Christ alone. You can't cling to your sin and cling to Christ. Jesus is very clear in the Gospels. You cannot serve two masters. Stop trying to serve two masters. Stop trying to serve money or work or yourself or convenience or comfort and Christ. You cannot do that. Leave what is sinful and clumb to Christ and cling to Christ. It is only here in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that eternal life will belong to you. And this is not a result of your own work. Do not hear me say that your obedience turns the eye of God towards you and says, look at that guy, he's doing pretty good, I should save him. No, the grace of God comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ and he offers himself to you freely. And the evidence of the one who has received him by faith is a desire to have relationship with God, an intensely practical relationship with him. It's only here in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that eternal life will belong to you. And your life will begin to give evidence of this relationship through the obedience that comes by faith. That leads us to the second question I want to ask you this morning, briefly. Is all of Christ seen in all of you? Is all of Christ seen in all of you? If you have turned from your sin, if you've come to Christ, and your life is giving evidence to the relationship with you, with, with, uh, that you have with God through him, the next question is this. Is all of Christ seen in all of your life? Ask yourself this this morning. Where am I resisting King Jesus in my day-to-day life? What have I put a little border around and said, not over here? Is it in your marriage? The way that you treat, speak to, spend time with your husband or wife? Or are you resistant to King Jesus in your parenting? The way that you train your children or the way that you discipline them? Or the way that you educate them? Or the way that you involve yourself in their lives? Are you resisting King Jesus with your parents? The way that you talk to them and your lack of honor for them? Or uh, the way that you have begun to think about them? Are you resistant to King Jesus in your work, in the way that you interact with your coworkers, or talk about your superiors, or talk about your subordinates? 
Are you resistant to King Jesus in your work, in the ethical standards you've slipped into? Or the trustworthiness of your word? Are you resistant to King Jesus in your entertainment? The way that you're willing to make moral compromises in what you watch on television or what you read in a novel? Are you resistant to King Jesus in your news consumption? The way they allow that talking heads on YouTube or on cable news networks to interpret the times for you? Friends, this list could go on and on and on. Where have you put a little border around in your life and said, Jesus, you're not touching this? We just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to us in order that we might repent and turn and run to Christ so that that area as well, Christ might be evident in. It may not be apparent to you right now. At this moment, that's fine. So pray. Take time during the final song. Take time uh, after lunch. Take time sometime today to pray, where am I resistant to King Jesus? Pray that the Son then would be glorified in you, that you would decrease and that Christ would increase, that your life would get evidence that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Every place that you set foot, every conversation that you have, every thought that you have, every decision that you make, is all of Christ seen clearly in all that I do. This is the glory that Jesus prays that the Father would give him. people to whom he has given freely eternal life. A people then who have received eternal life, have received right relationship with God through him, giving evidence to the relationship that they have with God, living by faith in obedience to all that he has commanded them to do. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. God, may Jesus Christ be glorified in us as a people. God, would we be exposed? God, would you show us the areas of our life where we have have harbored or put up little boundaries or borders and said, not over here. Would you give us clarity of mind? Would you convict us through the Holy Spirit to see our sin? And would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the gift of repentance? That we would turn and that we would run. That we would run to Christ and to him alone. That we would lay our sin at the feet of, foot of the cross. And that we would, that we would say, we must decrease. He must increase. God, and if there are men and women and boys and girls here who have not trusted Jesus, who are trusting anything other than Jesus to have right relationship with God, if there are men and women and boys and girls here who don't even believe that God exists, God, would you, through your spirit this morning, change the trajectory of their life through the word? God, would it bear the fruit that you intend for it to bear now in our hearts? God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.